Well, if you have your Bible here this morning, you can go ahead and begin to find your way to Psalm chapter 80. The title of our message here today is America at a Crossroads. In the next three weeks, I'm going to be talking about our nation, Christian citizenship, and these kinds of topics as we are thinking about what we're going to do during this contentious election season. I know what some folk are thinking, you pastors, you shouldn't mix politics and religion. I don't know where they got that idea. They certainly didn't get it from the Bible because the Bible isn't bashful about any of these things. And we have to speak on those things that God has been so clear about in His Word. And He's told us a lot there that we can apply to ourselves today as we are getting ready to head out to the polls. Maybe some of you have already been. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the major issues facing Christians, uh, the church as a whole, and of course our nation. And so these are going to be some important times as we meet together. Psalm chapter 80, America at a Crossroads. There's a famous story about founding father Benjamin Franklin. As the deliberations of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 were being held, they took place in strict secrecy. And many anxious citizens gathered outside Independence Hall there in Philadelphia. And as the proceedings finally came to a close, many citizens wanted to know what kind of government had been produced behind those closed doors. And so the story goes that as Benjamin Franklin exited those meetings, a little spinster lady named Miss Powell walked up and put her finger in Benjamin Franklin's face and said, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And with no hesitation, Ben Franklin replied, A republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. Now, you have to understand that our founding fathers, when they set about to create this great American experiment, that they studied the governments of old, Britain, and Israel, Greece, and Rome. And they knew that what ultimately was the demise of many nations down through the ages was sin and immorality. They knew that America would stand or fall on the moral virtue of its people. And so without righteousness, a republic cannot work. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Just listen to our very own founding fathers, George Washington, our first president, said this, quote, religion and morality are the essential pillars of civil society. Our second president, John Adams, he wrote, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And then Noah Webster, that man who put together our dictionary, he said this, The moral precepts contained in scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. And then James Madison, the father of our constitution, listen to what he said. Quote, We have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government. Far from it, he said, we have staked the future upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves 
and sustain ourselves according, watch this, to the Ten Commandments of God. Boy, that's enough to send our liberal media into a coma. It's such a statement as that. But I return to the Word of God. Proverbs 14 and 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You see, righteousness and freedom are directly connected. When a nation steps away from the moral principles of God as expounded upon and written clearly in the Word of God, that nation will place their hands in the fetters of Satan and become slaves of sin. So liberty is directly connected to righteousness. The more righteous we are as a people, the more freedom we have. The more iniquity and sin we have as a people, the more we are in chains and in bondage to Satan and sin. Now, we find ourselves today at a crossroads. America is in a perilous situation. And oddly, I think it is strikingly similar to that of ancient Israel at the time that Psalm chapter 80 was written. In Psalm chapter 80, we find one of Israel's patriots imploring God to rescue his people from the brink of national disaster. And scholars think that it was likely written sometime after the Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C. So God's people had been destroyed. They had been scattered and sent to another part of the world and they were not yet returned back to their ancient homeland. And in this psalm, what we have is one of God's prophets, one of God's psalmists crying out for the Lord to restore His people back to their homeland. And we find ourselves at that same precipice today. We have a decision that will determine our nation's fate, what direction we will go for the next four years, and even possibly beyond. And now Psalm 80, I think today, is a fitting passage for our nation because it gives us hope. It gives us hope that any nation who will humble themselves and come back to God, who will repent and place not national independence but national dependence upon God, they have hope to live and flourish and prosper. Now there's four principles that I want you to note as we study this psalm today. The first one is this, great national decline great national decline now in the opening stanza of this psalm our writer explains how Israel was under God's judgment and friend let me remind you today that God's judgment doesn't necessarily mean fire falling from the sky but all that God must do at times is to remove his hand of blessing and protection from a nation and they will feel the natural effects of judgment as sin is sown and then it is reaped. And that's where the decline begins. Now let's begin reading in verse 1. And we will notice the text says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. Verse 3, restore us, O God, and let your face shine that we may be saved. Every Bible believer, every uh, twice-born child of God today, that's our cry as God's people as we think about the peril of our nation. God, save us. 
Not because we're good, but because you're good and you're merciful. Now notice here how God turned away from His people. He did three things to the nation of Israel as they felt judgment. First, He did something in verse 4. God rejected their prayers. Notice what verse 4 says. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Now think about this. Even in the darkest period of Israel's history, there was always a righteous remnant who was leading the people back to repentance. Elijah and Elisha, they rallied God's people. There were good kings such as Hezekiah and Josiah who were able to see short revivals in the nation's history. But by the time that the psalmist penned these words and the ink had dried on the parchment, the sins of the people were so great that God had quit listening to them because all it was was pious platitudes. He wasn't hearing the prayers of His people. You know, likewise, our nation has been called back to repentance by various prophetic voices down through the ages. You could talk about Jonathan Edwards. You could talk about George Whitfield. You might mention D.L. Moody or Billy Graham down through the years. These prophetic voices that God has sent our nation to call us back to Him. And every time we may have seen a, a short burst or maybe a few years of revival, but friend, today... We've fallen far, far away from the church house and far from God's morals and God's precepts in the Scriptures that today, Lord, the, the way back to Him is a lot further than what it was years ago. And I want to know today, where are God's people? Where are the prayer warriors? Uh, we're the only ones who have the wherewithal within us and the Holy Spirit to cry out for God to do something in our generation like He did years ago that I read about and I see videos and I hear about. I thank God if, if you did it back then, you haven't changed. Uh, you can do it again in our time. You know, one of those prophetic voices that helped shape America was a Puritan lawyer who in 1630 came here to Salem, Massachusetts. His name was John Winthrop. He became one of the leading figures in the American colonies. And Winthrop's most famous contribution to our nation was a famous sermon that he actually preached to the settlers who were on the boat Arbella as they came across the Atlantic from Europe to America. He preached this sermon on board. And he gave a great vision for America. You hear this all the time in political rhetoric, that America would be a shining city upon a hill. Well, that came from this man, John Winthrop. But at the end of that message, as he preaches to the people on board that ship, the first generation of Europeans to come here, he said, if America rebelled against the God of her founding, oh, look what he said would happen. He said, quote, we shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause Him to withdraw His present help from us. Watch this. We shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall cause the prayers of God's servant to be turned into curses. Exactly what Psalm 80 and verse 4 said till we be consumed out of the good land that we are going. The first thing that happened in Israel as God's judgment was 
present there and the nation was declining is that God rejected their prayers. I pray and I hope that God hasn't rejected the prayers of His church here today. Next thing He did, God redoubled their pain. Look at what happened in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, You fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. Jehovah had once fed the children of Israel with manna, heavenly wonder bread in the wilderness, and He gave them pure water from the rock. Why, during the kingship of David, David saw a golden era as he moved the Ark of the Covenant from the wilderness now into Jerusalem. And then when Solomon reigned, oh, there was wealth and prosperity from all over the world that came flowing into Israel. It used to be a great prosperous land. But now the text said that the only thing that God gave His people was copious tears to cry every night. Some of you know what that's about. Some of you older folks who have seen the glory days and the golden age of America. You tell me what things used to be like years ago and now you've lived through such tremendous change. You say to me, I don't even understand or I can't even comprehend the country that I'm living in today. It's not the same as it was. Boy, have we seen a river of tears flow in the United States in 2020. You see, sorrow follows sin as day follows night. And when we take what God says is wrong and what God said is evil and we legislate it and we put a stamp of approval on it and we sign it into law, friend, I'm telling you, there's tears only to be had. Think of the cries of the unborn. Over 60 million now as they have been butchered in this terrible move of abortion across our nation. 60 million lives snuffed out. Think of all of the rioting and the looting that we have seen this summer after the George Floyd killing. I read a Fox News report that said that Black Lives Matter and Antifa rioters have caused $2 billion in damage across 140 U.S. cities in just one summer. You know, opioid addiction hasn't gone away either. According to our Centers for Disease Control, drug overdose is the leading cause of accidental death in our United States. That's 67,000 people every year. 142 deaths every day. The cries of mothers, the cries of families as they find out their sons, their daughters, their family members are pumping poison into their body and dying every day. Tears being shed. Tears of mothers who aborted those babies and now live with shame and regret. Tears of families being driven apart. Tears at the graveside. It's difficult to know how many lives have truly been taken from the COVID-19 pandemic this year, but we do know that one side effect is all of the Dacronian lockdowns that have caused 100,000 small businesses to close for good. That's a side effect that we're living with the tears that have been shed as innocent people have had their businesses and their homes and buildings burned down by rioters. They said this is the worst tsunami of small business bankruptcies and closures ever since the Great Depression. Do you think God is trying to get our attention? Can we take the cotton balls out of our ears and begin to listen to the Word of God once again? God redoubled their pain. He said, all right, you want to learn the hard way, we'll go down that pathway. And I see that America is 
going down that same direction as well. He rejected their prayers. He redoubled their pain. And then look at what verse 6 says in this great national decline. The Bible says that he ruined their prestige. He ruined their prestige. Verse 6, You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. God help us. You know, Israel was one of the respected nations, but now... When they wrote this psalm, they were the laughing stock of their enemies. And you know, we've all watched those horrific videos of all of the unrest and all of the rioting that's gone on as they burned down these American cities. Did you know, I read a report by Todd Starnes. He said that at one of these riots in Oakland, California, that a mob went down the street, and you know what they were chanting? Death to America. Death to America. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, there were rioters who went down the street shouting, Kill the cops! Kill our cops! And even here in Asheville, do you see what they did to the Asheville Police Department? A group of rioters took a coffin and they filled it full of manure and they sent it to the Asheville Police Department as a way to mock them. There it is. There's the headline right there. Friend, where are we as a nation? God ruined their prestige. What a sad indictment on a nation when its own citizens have adopted the chance of our enemies. You would expect that kind of hate and that kind of message in Tehran, not in America, but friend, it's here. We've got to that point of great national decline and we have an opportunity to step back from the precipice and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe we ought not go down this road any further. You see... There's no question that we've gone downhill as a nation, morally, spiritually, culturally. And the immense decision that we face on November 3rd is to decide, are we going to elect leaders who are going to accelerate the demise of our nation? Or are we going to elect leaders who will at least pump the brakes and say, we can't go any further. We have to stop right here. You see, the soul of a nation is at stake today, friend. Are we going to become socialists? Or are we going to remain as we are? Are we going to defund our police? Are we going to pray for them and support them and help them as they go out there every day and risk their lives for you and me? Are we going to make abortion easier? Are we going to stand up as God's people and say, I don't care what label you put on it, it is murder! And as a God-fearing, Bible-believing Christian, listen to me, I could never place my endorsement on a ballot for a candidate who thinks it's okay to murder a baby. My goodness. Are we going to turn to God? Or are we going to let our heart get a little harder until the point of no return? That's what happened to Israel. But let's not let it happen to our nation. Great national decline. But then I want you to see number two. Glorious National design. Glorious national design. Now in the next stanza, verses 8 through 11, our psalmist waxes eloquent about the special purpose that God had for the founding of Israel. Now of course, let's make a side note here. America is not Israel. And this passage is not about America. America is not a theocracy like Israel was. We're not under a covenant with God like Israel was. 
But it is undeniable when you look at America's history and America's founding that God had a special hand. He had blessing upon this country. You can't deny it. So what did God do for Israel? What was the great national design for Israel? Well, notice this in verses 8 and 9. They were divinely planted. Divinely planted. Verse 8 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove it out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Now notice here that our psalmist uses the image of a farmer clearing off land and planting a vineyard as a picture of how God planted Israel among the nations. Now John Phillips, who's a great Bible scholar, he makes a note in one of his commentaries about three symbols that God uses of Israel in the Bible. Notice this. In the Scriptures, he says, three plants symbolize Israel. The grapevine, the fig tree, and the olive. The vine represents Israel from its planting in the promised land until the nation rejected Christ, which is the way they're referred to here in Psalm 80. The fig, he said, represents Israel from the time of Christ's rejection to Christ's return. And you remember that Jesus cursed the fig tree. And then he notices that the olive represents Israel as she will be in a coming day when the Lord sets up His millennial kingdom here on earth. So there's that imagery that Israel was divinely planted. And friend, in like manner, I believe with all my heart as I have given my life to study in history, I believe with every fiber in my being that God planted these United States for a sovereign purpose. Daniel 2.21 says that God raises up nations and He removes kings. Acts 17.26 says that God has determined the boundaries of all the nation's dwelling place. And I believe that America was planted by God. You say, how so? To be a beacon of hope. To be a place of freedom. A land of opportunity. And a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ could go into the four corners of the earth. Did you know that when the Puritans came from Europe to America, you know why they came? Religious freedom. Because they wanted a land where they could preach and have their church according to their own conscience and what they believed about the Word of God. The Mayflower Compact was written in 1620. By the way, 400 years ago from this year. And the first settlers of Plymouth, as they sat in the captain's quarters of their ship, they wrote what was known as the Birth Certificate of America, the Mayflower Compact. And do you know, they redact it when kids learn about it. I don't even know if they learn about it in public school these days, but when I was a teacher, they heavily redacted the Mayflower Compact. And I wouldn't have it. I planted the whole thing out, and I let my students read the whole thing because you know what it says at the end of that? It says that they affirmed, quote, that we are setting out this great undertaking, listen, for the glory of God and the advance of the Christian faith. That's how we started. Divinely planted by people who had courage, people who had faith, and believed in the Lord our God. And don't believe the revisionist historians who want to tell you otherwise. You see, they want to try and get us to forget our history so that they can rewrite it and take away our freedoms and our liberties. Divinely planted. But then I also want you to see this. Divinely prospered. Israel prospered at one time as they were seeking God. Verse 10 says, The mountains were covered with its shade, its mighty cedars with its branches. 
Verse 11, it sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. What this passage is talking about here is that for generations, Israel prospered like no other nation in antiquity. And during their golden age under that united kingdom of David and Solomon, oh, there was prosperity such that it flowed out down the river to the rest of the world. And the whole world was blessed by little tiny Israel there in Jerusalem, God's people. Now, if you study America, listen, there is no doubt that God has unparalleled blessings that He has poured out on this country. Did you know, listen to this, America has only 5% of the world's population, and yet we have more than 50% of all the modern luxuries that characterize that civilization. I get so tired of people talking about how terrible this country is, how awful it is to live here, how hard it is. Let me tell you, I've been to the third world. I've seen how other folk live. And friend, we don't have a clue how good we've got it. We are so blessed beyond that we have no reason to whine and complain. It's time for some of these people to move out of their mom and daddy's basement and get out and get a backbone and start living and working and realize the freedom and the goodness that you've been given in this country. Listen to this study. In 2019, if the poorest 20% of Americans were their own nation, take the bottom 20%, the poorest of the poor here in America, it said they would be considered one of the richest nations in the world. In other words, the poorest people in America enjoy more food, more health care and amenities than the rest of the world's populations combined. We are a prosperous and a blessed people. And I can't stand it that we have a generation in the schools and the universities that want to indoctrinate our young people to teach them that to hate America. How are we doing this to ourselves, people? You see, one reason I believe that God has blessed America is twofold. Number one, historically, America has been the force for world missions. Did you know that since World War II, 350,000 missionaries has been sent out from American shores? But friend, if we don't wake up and realize what we've got, they're going to be sending missionaries to America one day. And then number two, the reason why God has blessed America, you don't want to know why? Because since its inception in 1948 as a nation, the nation of Israel, America has been a friend to Israel. For the most part. And right now, praise God, we do have the most pro-Israel president I think that we have ever had. So we see, number one, that there was great national decline. And then number two, we see that there was glorious national design. But then our writer talks about something else that we have to see this morning, and that is grave national danger. Grave national danger. And that's in verse 12 through 13. You see, what the Lord gives, He takes away. Israel could have been proud of their covenant with God. They could have boasted of how God time and again had delivered them with miracles. They could hold their chest out because they were the vessel that God chose to preserve and to carry forth His Word. But friend, don't you know to whom much is given, much is required. And Israel failed. Look at what the Bible says there. Why then have you broken down its walls? This is the writer talking to God. Why have you broken down our walls so that all who pass along the way, 
pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed upon it. Do you see what happened to this nation? Israel, after many, many years, fell into idolatry, fell into immorality, were sacrificing their own children to the foreign god Molech who had made idols and Astaroth in high places to other gods, who had so lost their way that they had forgotten where the, to, the commandments and where the Word of God was in the temple such that it had dust covering it and they had to recover it. Due to their years of unrepentant sin and the rejection of the prophets, you know what God finally did? This verse tells us He tore down the hedge. He broke down the walls, so to speak. And He allowed them to be judged and plundered by other nations. That's what that passage is about. You see, God began to send remedial judgments to His people. Locust plagues, and famine, and other calamities. And when that had no effect, and the people did not respond, God allowed other armies, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to plunder the city. And eventually they burned down the temple. And after Jesus, in the year 70 A.D., the Romans came in and totally leveled everything and sent the Jews to the four corners of the world. And for almost 2,000 years, they went across the world with no nation to call their own. You see, Israel had lost her way. And two contributing factors to Israel's downfall was apostasy, falling back from the Word of God. And you know what the other one was? Prosperity. The richer they got, the more blessings they enjoyed, the more luxuries they had, the more comfortable they got. And their hearts became proud, too proud to pray. In fact, Moses warned his people about that in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 12 through 14. Look at what he says. He says, God is talking to the people. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, watch this. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Is that not the same formula that we have followed as a nation? Prosperous, blessed, been given more than anybody else in the world, and yet we complain about having to go to church. We make excuses for not hearing the Word of God, and we have no passion for spiritual things. Friends, we in America have repeated the same sin as Israel and have forgotten God. And you know what? God's way of dealing with Israel is the same way He deals with many nations, in fact, all nations. And here's the principle. What we can take away from all this is that God judges nations based on the amount of light and opportunity they are given. And the United States has had more light and grace than any other nation in the past centuries, and yet we have ousted God from our country. And in this generation, we have the opportunity to see us go down faster than the Titanic if we don't get serious and say, we can't be silent anymore. We can't sit by anymore. This is our time. This is our country. This is our church. This is our future. We must rise up. Look back over the past 20 years. The psalmist said that what God did is He took down the hedge. And He allowed all these things to begin to hit the nation. 
I want you to look back. It's 2020. We have 20 years now we can look back and think, has the hedge been lowered in the United States? It started with 9-11. We thought we could never be attacked like that. And God humbled us and showed us at the center of our financial capital that we're not as big and as tough and that our money can't protect us. God let the hedge down. I believe it. And then think about all the storms and the hurricanes that have come over the years. Katrina. And we could name storm after storm. Sandy. And then think about the shootings in our schools. And yes, even in the churches. And I think God has lowered the hedge. And every time something hits, He's saying, are you waking up? Do you hear me? I'm trying to get your attention. I'm not playing games. Then we had the 09 financial crisis and then this year we had COVID and all the madness in the streets. You think God has let down the hedge? I think it's beyond question, friend. This is what Mark Hitchcock wrote in his book, Corona Crisis. He said this, Think of how COVID-19 has changed the world in such a short time. Multiply the chaos of 2020 many times and we have a small window into the rapid pace disintegration that will come upon the world in the tribulation. The seven-year period that the Bible predicts in Revelation 6 through 19. It's coming. You don't want to be here for that. But he said the coronavirus contagion is a wake-up call. A piercing alarm. A global shaking urging everyone to turn to Jesus. He said this is an opportunity to make sure that we're ready for the any moment coming of Christ's friend with all the craziness in our world. If I didn't know Jesus Christ, if I hadn't truly repented, if my heart wasn't right, I would come to this altar today and I would repent and I would come to know Him because He's the only hope for you, for your family, for our country. And friend, we as God's people must... Stop being politically correct. Let's be biblically correct. You can't wrap the Bible in the American flag. God's throne is not red, white, and blue, I'm sorry to say. Yes, our nation has done much to advance the cause of the gospel. But friend, we are also guilty of unspeakable evil. And we've done it to ourselves. And if God judged Israel, His chosen people then what will he do to a nation who has no special claim on him? You see, listen to me. God is not just America's greatest hope, but God is also America's greatest threat. And if we don't repent, and if we don't, as God's people, understand this principle, we think it's a scandal in our nation when a president is impeached. But what will we do if God impeaches us? Because <laughs> he's not going anywhere. So where does this all leave us? Well, let me give you some hope today. There was great national decline. Then there was glorious national design. Then thirdly, there was grave national danger. And I finish here today with gracious national deliverance. There is hope. <laughs> there is an answer. There is a way. The good news is that this psalm offered hope to Israel. There was still time to repent. There was still time to turn back to God and to see their land healed. And I hope that America has not crossed that invisible line beyond the grace period of God's judgment. This passage right here gives three real quick steps 
about what to do. How do we get back? First off, look up. Look up. Verse 14. Turn again. You can imagine him turning his head toward heaven. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. The stock that your right hand planted for the Son whom you have made strong for yourself. We have to realize that as God's people, our hope is not ultimately in government. My hope is in God Almighty. Some nations trust in horses other than chariots, but my trust is in the Lord God of Israel. Our national problems won't be solved by a political process. An election won't fix the hearts of red and blue. But our answer is going to be in spiritual brokenness. Answers won't come from Washington, D.C., but they'll come from Almighty God and His timeless truth and His infallible Word and His gracious Son and His precious Holy Spirit. Don't look to the Supreme Court. Look to the Sovereign Christ. I'm not looking to the party of the donkey or the party of the elephant. My hope is in the Lamb of God who was crucified before the foundation of the earth, who's risen, reigning, and soon returning, friend. You see, we have to look up and realize where our hope comes from. And then secondly, we have to fess up. Fess up to our sin, our wrongdoing, where we've gone off track. How we have been apathetic as God's people and let our nation be stolen from us. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he gave Israel this promise. God gave Israel this promise, and you hear it quoted a lot. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now God said that to Israel. But the timeless principle is still in place today. Who are God's people on the earth? It's the church. So we have to fess up and realize that we too have a part to play in all of this. We can't just point the finger and say it's the media's fault or it's the Democrats' fault or it was President Obama's fault or the Supreme Court or, or whatever who we would want to make the scapegoat. It's our country too. Fess up. And then lastly, speak up. Notice verse 17 and 18, and I'm done. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Watch this. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Now, this is also a messianic psalm. And what I mean by that is that it points to Jesus. And that title, the son of man, that's a messianic title there that refers refers to none other than Jesus Christ. And this psalmist was looking forward to the coming of Jesus who would ultimately cleanse the nation of their sin, who would restore them, who would die and rise for them. In fact, in John 15, 1, Jesus connected Himself in this way. He said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Just as Israel was the vine in this passage, it, that vine eventually bore fruit, and that fruit was Jesus Christ. The Savior of all mankind. And so listen to me as I close today. As believers, we can no longer stay silent about issues. We can no longer stay silent about the gospel. You see, evil prospers when God's people sit back and do nothing. And so we won't get involved. We'll just let the sinners make the rules and 
rig the system. And friend, that's exactly why we're in the predicament that we are today. Because God's people have fallen asleep at the wheel. We've stayed silent. And we've stayed at home on election day. You see, this is what our world wants. This is what the media wants. They want the church to die. They want the church to sideline and shut up and stop preaching to us and stop telling us about evil and stop pointing the light because uh, we like the darkness and we want to continue to hide there. That's what Jesus said. You see, this world wants Christians to shut up about the gospel, to shut up about abortion, to shut up about the slave trade, to shut up about corruption and not mention anything and just go along and get along and be weak-kneed and sissies. And friend, we can't do that anymore as God's people, I'm telling you. And the day has come for some preachers out there to get some backbone and dig their heels in and open up the Word of God and don't worry about where the chips fall but preach the Word of God and let people know the truth because we've got too many sissified preachers out there who are so afraid of offending anybody that they won't preach the Word and step on some toes and let people know this God is serious And that we have a part to play in all of this. The Bible has spoken about all of these issues that Washington, D.C. is fighting and quibbling over right now. That the media in our world is so confused about. Friend, I've got the answer book. And I know the Savior. Praise God today. We can have our voice heard on November 3rd. Don't vote along party lines. Well, my grandpa or my granddaddy have always voted this way. Don't vote what your union tells you to vote. You vote according to the conscience given to you by the Word of God. And what the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, let that be your conviction as you go into the ballot box and you put your vote forward for the candidate that you best think represents the heart of God and the Word of God. And by golly, pray and support the church. Because the church of Jesus Christ is the dam that's holding back the floodwaters of evil and darkness in this world. Friend, we are the salt and light of this dark and decaying generation. And when the church is removed and the rapture happens, you think 2020 was bad. You wait till the church isn't here. 25 million evangelicals said in 2016 I think I'll sit this one out and they stayed home do you think if we could get at least half of that number to come out and support biblical values on November 3rd that we could make a difference you better believe that we can friend listen to me the answer is not in the White House. It's not in the courthouse. It's not in the schoolhouse. The answer is in God's house. Amen. Amen. Let me close today with this and I'm done. There's a story about a little known pastor who served during the Revolutionary War. Mostly his name has been lost to history. But God did a miracle through this one little pastor. The year was 1778, and the place was Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. It was during the brutal days of the Revolutionary War, and General George Washington's soldiers were cold, starving, undersupplied, and desperate. More of his soldiers were dying of exposure and disease than from the battle. 
There were reports that men were so hungry during that long winter at Valley Forge that they were boiling the leather on their boots and eating it. Many of Washington's freedom fighters were seriously considering deserting or returning home. British armies surrounded them, occupied New York and Philadelphia, and the navy of the British controlled the coast. It looked as if all hope was lost. Washington ordered the army chaplains to conduct a worship service. They took a national day of prayer and fasting in April of 1778. Here's what happened. There was a little 30-year-old pastor by the name of Israel Evans. There is his picture. He was a chaplain in Washington's army. And he preached a sermon on Psalm 115. And the text said this, Not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name give glory. And the story goes that as that little pastor, Israel Evans, preached that simple sermon that revival sparked in Washington's army. And they printed copies of his sermon and it was passed all throughout America. And the army regained their morale. And later Washington said that as looking back on that American Revolution that it had to be the hand of God that saved them. And it started with that little pastor and that little sermon and those group of soldiers who huddled together and prayed and asked God to deliver them from destruction. And friend, if God did it, in 1778 my God hasn't changed one iota in 2020 he is waiting he is willing he is powerful he is gracious and all that we must do as God's people is say we've got to fast we've got to pray we've got to participate we've got to preach and praise and let the name of our God be known outside these walls and I believe God will bless and God will turn back What's been happening in our country? That's the only hope I've got. Will you stand with me today?